They must be destroyed on sight. Welcome to uh, another episode of They Must Be Destroyed on Sight. Uh, I'm your host, Lee Russell, joined by my friend, my co-host, the fantastically follicled in the face, Daniel Harper. Say hello, Daniel. Hi, Lee. Thanks for uh, having me once again. Yeah. I definitely need a haircut. Uh, the, uh, the, the fans of the show can't see it, but it's, my hair is getting ridiculous. <laughs> Beard and uh, head, you know, so, you know. No, yeah. Wonderful thing to talk about on an audio podcast, you know, that I need a haircut. But. He's, he's almost cousin it at this point. Yeah, I, I just now was looking at the uh, the video on Skype and going, wow, I really, really need a haircut. <laughs> um, because apparently I don't own a mirror in my house, you know. <laughs> Alright, so uh, the movie we have picked for this episode is going to be from 1976, and it's The Town That Dreaded Sundown. Directed by Charles B. Pierce, uh, an independent film director who's probably best known for The Legend of Boggy Creek from 1972, although he's done quite a few movies in, in his in his career. Um, Didn't was, Mystery Science Theater 3000 do that one? Or did they, they do the sequel? They did the sequel that he came back, uh, which was actually the third movie in the series. Okay. They, they wanted him to direct the second movie, but it was uh, some like even more ridiculous kitty version of Boggy Creek that he poo-pooed on. But, uh, yeah, so, um, th this, uh, this movie is, uh, uh, like I said, directed by Charles B. Pierce, written by Early Smith and Andrew Brine, or Andrew, Pr Andrew Prine, who claims he actually wrote the ending of this film, because uh, <laughs> apparently they forgot to write an ending for it. Um, well, even in the finished version, doesn't really have much of an ending, but I think we'll get there. Mm -hmm. um, so this is basically based on uh, the real-life uh, Moonlight Murders uh, in 1946 in Texarkana, which is, uh, I think it's the uh, Arkansas side of Texarkana, because there's a Texarkana, Arkansas, there's a Texarkana, Texas, and it's a border town that's split right down the middle by the actual borders between those two states, if I'm not mistaken. Um and, uh, so, uh, basically this, this follows, um, a series of killings that, uh, baffle the police and their, their attempts to basically capture this killer. Uh, they bring in, uh, a famous, uh, Texas Ranger, uh, here played by Ben Johnson. He plays Captain J.D. Morales, uh, who is actually based on a real life, uh, Texas Ranger known as, uh, Lone Wolf, uh, Gonzalez, uh, who was actually, um, uh, I think, a Chuck Norris movie, I th think, is actually based on him, uh, Lone Wolf McQuaid or something along those lines, I think. Um, ben Johnson himself, actually a very, fairly big name to get in a small independent film. Uh, you might remember him from all kinds of westerns, classic westerns, like Shane, The Wild Bunch. Uh, he was in The Last Picture Show. Uh, he, he's been in a lot, he was in a lot, a lot of stuff in his career. Um, very famous actor. Um, also stars, uh, Andrew Prine as Deputy, uh, Deputy Norman Ramsey, 
who's uh, and a lot of these characters are basically fictional characters based slightly on real life people. He's he's based on uh, Bowie County Sheriff Bill Presley. Uh, this also stars in a sort of a supporting role Don Wells, who you might know is uh, I believe what is a Ginger or Mary Ann from Gilligan's Island, one or the other. <laughs> I can't remember which one. But uh, but Mary Ann, Mary yeah, Ann, according Mary to Ann. the. Uh... According to the Wikipedia page, I'm not. I'm not a Gilligan's Isle. Uh, yeah, I, you know, I think you and I are just young enough that we didn't quite grow up with it on syndication the way that. Uh, yeah, people five years older than us did. You know. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Bud Davis plays the killer, and he actually is a stuntman who went on to do a lot of work. He was actually, I believe, in Inglorious Bastards. I think it was one of his recent credits. Uh, I know he's done stunts in a lot of uh, recent pictures as well. He's been working steady, I guess. So, um, And also, uh, the director himself, Charles B. Pierce, uh, stars as a patrolman, A.C. Benson, known as Sparkplug, and we'll definitely get into that, I believe. My favorite character in the film. <laughs> <laughs> um, so as I said, it's based on the Texas Canada... Um, Moonlight Murders, uh, the Phantom Killer, who was uh, never caught. Uh, in fact, like sort of the tagline for this film as it was premiering was that he's still walking the streets. You know, uh, one of those really great hooks to get young children to want to watch the film and to scare mothers. Um, so, yeah, uh, anything you want to say on this uh, so far, Daniel? Um, you recommended that we do this uh, film for the podcast, and I was I was I, I actually had not heard of this film, which is kind of one of those. Uh, it's hard to find a film that I literally just never heard of. It's easy to find a film I haven't seen, but hard yeah. to find one that like has any kind of reputation at all. In fact, uh, there was apparently a remake of this a couple of years yeah. ago that I didn't know anything about either. Um, mostly because I'm completely ignorant and you shouldn't actually have me on this podcast. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, no, um, I really enjoyed the film. I think for me there's a little bit of that cognitive dissonance at first when you realize that, you know, they're bringing on the Texas Ranger, you know, and they're going to play these tropes straight. You know, that this is early enough in this genre that... Uh, you know, we are now further away from this film's release than the events of this film were from the time that the film was made. Yeah. Because the, the events of the film were roughly 30 years after, 30 years before the film was made. Mm -hmm. And we're now further, or, or about that distance from the film. No, we're further away. We're almost 40 years away from yeah. the making of the, the film itself. Um, and it's interesting to kind of think that way, that we're, we're getting a look back in time, not only at... Uh, the way that things were in 1946, but the way that people in 1976 saw things in 1946. Hmm. And, um, I don't know, you know, I think if it was made today, you would see things like, oh, the Texas Ranger is going to come in and, like, save us, and, you know, he would end up being uh, either a glory hog, or he'd be a, uh, you know, just an asshole, or he would end up being the killer himself. Yeah. Um, and yet it's played completely straight in this film. Uh, you know, and lots of things like that that just sort of like you're expecting twists that don't come. Um, it's actually a really, really straightforward film. Um, I enjoyed it a lot. I found myself really kind of getting engaged in the in the film as it goes on. Um, it has a, a, a kind of um, 
slow burn kind of pace. Yeah. Um, you definitely see, you know, something like Zodiac, where David Fincher got a lot of the uh, the imagery, you know, kind of comes from this mm-hmm. general uh, genre, and certain shots seemed almost ripped off completely. I mean, I've seen, I see, I saw Zodiac, you know, several years ago, and you know, there are certain things like, wow, this feels a lot like Zodiac. Of course, yeah. Zodiac was much later. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I feel like I feel like I don't have a lot of. Uh, pointed things to say necessarily it's it's more like i enjoyed the film i really I, I i liked a lot of it um i thought some of the humor was kind of really strange and yeah. and, and, and strangely placed but um and i think we'll get into that uh, good old spark plug um, <laughs> <laughs> um uh but yeah I, I i enjoyed the film i found it uh compelling and um a really worthy thing in the, in the genre um yeah so I, you know. I mean this was actually um really before the slash slasher uh, sort of genre uh, really took hold i mean the only movie i can think of before this would be something along the lines of black christmas made here right. in canada and then halloween was two years after this um and really and it's not necessarily a slasher film per se in a lot of ways because it's it's half police procedural, which is done very straightforward. It's like dragnet straightforward almost. <laughs> and um, Just the facts, ma'am. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. And, the, of course, it has a narration that adds to that sort of docudrama feel to it. You know, these events happened here. These people went here. It, it reminded me a little bit of In Cold Blood, um, mm. if, you, if you kind of think about that film in terms of its, it's very kind of... Uh, dry, uh, documentary is the wrong word, but very detached, you know, it's very detached from its, uh, from even the, the big kind of action scenes, the horror scenes, you know, the, the camera kind of stands back and watches, it's not, um, you know, it's not as, uh, the cinematography doesn't lend itself to being, like, as, as, uh, focused as, you know, it's not really trying to draw out emotion as much as it's just showing you kind of what, what happened or what, you know the fictionalized version of this is yeah. is happening. Um, I think it's an effective choice. I was, uh, you know, um, I think the the low budget kind of shows um, in places here, mm-hmm. but I really didn't mind the the uh, the fact that it's you know clearly the production values are not you know as great as they might have been. Yeah. I feel like it kind of has this kind of lived in feel. This world kind of feels like a a place where people actually live, partly because it really doesn't have the 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 polish and the flash that other films in this genre sometimes do. Yeah, I, I feel like uh, the film looks looks and feels very authentic for like the the, the era it's trying to present. Like I didn't see any like um, actually I, the only I only saw one thing in the whole film uh, <laughs> near the ending that uh, would give away that it was not in 1946 and that it's a movie. Um, <laughs> but um, <laughs> For the most part, like everything, they they got it perf- pretty much perfect. Like the clothes, the look, the feel, the way the people talked. Um, sort of sort of weird things like um, how some of the victims, like the vast age difference between some of the couples the killer murdered, because um, that was commonplace back then, especially in the South, where you would have like a twenty or thirty something year old man dating a girl just out of her teens. You know. Yep. Um, and um yeah i was i was actually just really impressed with that and i mean ben john um 
Ben Johnson, his character comes in, he feels very authentic. Like, he's, I mean, th this guy is a seasoned professional actor, and I, I still don't know how Charles B. Pierce managed to actually get him to do this film, but... <laughs> Maybe he had some incriminating photos. Might have. Um, but, I mean, he does a stellar job. Like, he, he really is the rock that holds the entire film together and makes it interesting. And he plays a really cool character, like, and it, it just felt so authentic to me. And then when you get to the kill scenes, um, you're, you're right. Like the way it's shot, it's so sort of clinical and detached. And that actually makes them more effective as far as I'm concerned because they look like they're real-life recreations of what actually happened. I mean, some of these are embellished quite a bit. Like, for instance, the trombone kill. Uh, like that I was never just thinking about that one, yeah. yeah. That never happened. Very strange scene, you know, mm. and, and, and uh, very like it feels like the killer is is improvising. That the killer yeah. is just like he's just he's just fucking around. He's not, uh, you know. We we kind of think today, and again, this is just a genre trope, you know. Like today, the kind of schlocky serial killer movies all have a very, you know, the Dexter phenomenon, where you know the killer has a particular modus operandi that he always follows. And that's how we catch the kid. And, you know, here it, it feels more like, and this is just some shit that happened. Um, yeah. I didn't look we a moment. Um, uh, we so I'm not so sure. <laughs> just go ahead. Keep going. Okay. Um, yeah, the trombone definitely felt like a really weird moment. I was not at all surprised to hear that it was not uh, real. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, no, um... Yeah, also, I mean, the, the kills themselves are um, obviously uh, effective, but uh, not a lot of gore, even by 1976 no. standards. Um, you know, you're really, you know, the camera isn't uh, holding on to it. The uh, the amount of just blood, the, the amount of detail you see, um, you know, there there's... You know, I, I admire it for that. I admire it for... There, there is a sense of restraint here. It mm -hmm. feels like it's... Um, even though it's a schlocky, you know, kind of story, and it's a schlocky film, I mean, it's meant to be... Um, I like the slow burn element of this, I think, is, is yeah. kind of worth landing on it. Yeah, that kill scene of the trombone, I mean, uh, definitely improvised for the movie, and I, I found it really especially disturbing because they didn't go the schlocky route with it, where they could have had him blowing, like, perfect notes out of the trombone, I mean, right. to, to make it some sort of, like, joke. Here you see a killer who's seems like he's like literally using it as a as a like a metaphor of penetration almost of rape or something along those lines where he almost seems like he's sexually excited when he's actually stabbing her with the trombone like you see you yeah. know you notice he's he's breathing even heavier when he's blowing out the mask like and I I found that as effective about the killer as well as like you see it's just really spooky because you see the mask where he's breathing and it keeps going in and out and in and out so, yeah, no, um, definitely the fact that we never, I mean, the fact that the, the real life killer was never caught means we don't really know anything about him. You know, we, yeah. we don't know who this guy was. And I think the film plays with that idea by just giving us no idea about who this, you know, we, we really don't have a backstory here. Mm -hmm. All we have is this is what this guy does. And, um, we're kind of asked to, or tasked with, we task ourselves with putting together the pieces and building a motivation, and yet, you know, if this is all you have, it's, it's, uh, 
there really is no way of building a motivation or a it's it's just and that was just a bunch of shit he did yeah um really uh again really effective i was i was uh uh i won't say surprised but i was definitely uh uh surprised by how much i liked yeah. the film i i was uh I definitely enjoyed it. Um, it was definitely not the film I thought it was going to be, honestly. Yeah. Um, and I think that docudrama, uh, kind of in cold blood esque, you know, kind of um, feel to it, the more police procedural elements of it, uh, definitely work in its favor. Hmm. Um, in terms, of, I keep bringing up other movies. It kind of reminded me a little bit of In the Heat of the Night. Um, yeah, yeah, I can see that. As well, um, yeah. It's it's kind of got that that kind of uh, rural police uh, procedural vibe. Um, it looks. Uh, you know, it kind of looks similar. Um, lots of uh, you really get a sense, particularly in the beginning of the film, just how boring being a rural police officer in Texarkana would be, mm. um, because they're just driving around on on streets, on on dirt roads, effectively yeah. for for much of the time. Um, lots of just sitting around in a patrol car and wishing something would happen. <laughs> um, you know. <laughs> yeah, and, um, and they didn't really. And this is before serial killer was even like a term. You know when these right, when yeah. these cases happen, like they didn't have profiling really for killers so much, at least not serial killers. And so, I mean, it's no surprise that the police were baffled. I mean, the movie, the police catch on much quicker than they actually did in real life. In real life, they thought these cases were unconnected for quite a while because right. they really had no evidence or motivation. Like they thought that these were crimes of passion by someone who basically knew the victims, you know, like jealous boyfriends or something like that, because essentially that's all a rural policeman would usually deal with, you know. They wouldn't be dealing with psychopathic killers, you know, in, in their right. neighborhood. I think it's, I don't know, I, I think it's time to talk about Spark Plug now. Yeah, uh, okay. You, <laughs> um, you know, I, I feel like there's there's a, not a lot, you know, I think we've said what, or I've said what I need to say about the uh, the killing. I, I, I want to talk about the comedy just a little okay. bit. Um, I... One of the things that was definitely on my mind when I uh, first uh, started this film, and when we before we first started talking on the podcast about the uh, you know the cultural differences between 1976 and 2014, mm -hmm. um, one of the things like the first time you really get to see Sparkplug, he's threatening to come over and shoot his neighbor's dog, <laughs> um, like. And basically, the uh, hero of the film at that point uh, basically like chastises him and says, "You know, you can't do that on you know company. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's played as a laugh." Um, and I think you know, in the in the aftermath of you know thirty eight more years of uh, police stories, and you know uh, this, I saw this film very soon after the events in Ferguson, Missouri. Mm -hmm. um, you know. Where uh, the the Michael Brown shooting and that sort of thing, you know, so very much on my mind were the, you know, were were the images of cops and brutality and that sort of yeah. thing, um, you know, to see that played again straight for laughs, you know, you, you kind of wonder like, well, what is what are they trying to say in 1976 with a scene like that, yeah. you know, and then later on when they're doing the kind of broad comedy where the uh, officers are dressed as. Uh, as ladies, yeah. so that uh, during during a, a stakeout, um, and one of the uh, uh, spark plug is wearing women's clothes, and he's <laughs> being felt up by his partner, uh, and you kind of like what are what are they trying to like what 
is is the guy just fucking with him or is this like a thing you know um i i start to you know like it's uh you know all sorts of ramifications you can you can start to think of when you when you uh put it in that context yeah. um um and just the general uh rapiness of what's going on in the uh cars to begin with you know when the uh it's like, oh, we got to pull over, and the uh, young ladies are almost to a person saying, oh, no, I need to go home. And it's like, well, come on, baby, you got to come on. And, like, I mean, they're feeling, you know, it's, again, very different uh, cultural cultural attitudes in 1976. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, and it just, it, it kept kind of coming back to me over and over again mm. watching this film. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. in particular, what do you think of the humor? What do you think of, you know, the, the uh. kind of the couple of moments that, uh, what do you think of the spark plug character? I, and then when you find out that that's the director of the film, you know, yeah, it's, it's, you know. Um, that is that is the most jarring part of the movie. And that's sort of the mo- part that threatens to deal derail the whole thing. I feel, and but at the same time, I can. And I'm not trying to defend it, but I think I understand where it's coming from because during this time, I mean, he's an independent director. He's trying to essentially sell his wares mostly through drive-ins and movie theaters by himself in the southern states like that's going to be his marketing area and i think that sort of comedy still played very well back then uh for that sort of audience right so i think that's mostly what he had in mind when he was doing that i mean it was a totally bad choice i mean for all the really awesome stuff he's done with this movie because i think this is probably his most accomplished work and i've seen a bunch of his films but that was just a really big blunder of a choice i think and those those parts are kind of hard to sit through like the only real comedy i like is like every once in a while you get like a wry smile or a remark from ben johnson's character but he plays it so straight that the comedy feels you know it's just a little bit of a laugh a little bit more organic and it's not distracting from the actual plot of the film you know so right right uh no um i actually i didn't mind the comedy so much i just kind of went with it i mean i, I kind of <laughs> see it as you know, this is a populist film. You know, this is not um, this is not an art house movie. This is this is playing to the cheap seats, mm-hmm. and uh, plenty of uh, you know, if you, you bring them in, you give them the schlocky horror. You got you know three or four kind of big set pieces with that, and then you got to fill up time other ways. Yeah, and um, giving 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 us a, a broad laugh in the middle of the film as a uh, you know Dukes of Hazard style uh, <laughs> car chase. Yeah. Uh, with a you know the, oh those Duke boys you know um, uh, although that's a bit anachronistic but uh, yeah. you know whatever although, although Daisy Duke wasn't getting murdered by a tr- uh, trombone afterwards right so. right yeah no it is it is jarring definitely yeah. but um, I don't know it, it is uh, sort of one of those things where I think I, I, I it didn't bother me as much as I, it might have otherwise I think if I saw this in a modern film it would have bothered me more but. Yeah. Uh, I think because it's such a kind of very clearly an artifact of its time that, um, you know, I, I kind of approached it in that way and, you know, was creeped out by the, uh, the creepy scenes, by the, by the uh, horror scenes, and was uh, kind of um, interested in the kind of drama police procedural elements yeah. of it. Uh, but, you know, and then the comedy, I just kind of accepted it as, and this is comedy, and it's very strange tonally. Uh, in the middle of all of that, but I do think it gives us a little bit of a breather from the rest of the film. Yeah, I can see um, that, yeah. You know. Uh, 
Yeah, you know, it's it's kind of like that scene in the middle of Seven when they just had the uh, the campfire fart scene. Oh right yeah, there, you know. <laughs> Like, uh, you know, like like Brad Pitt's like, oh, look, my wife's head is in a box. And then, oh, by the way, also a uh, fart joke. You know, yeah. like it's uh, very similar. What's in the box? What's in the box? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. man. Um, that was a very weird joke. I apologize. That's, that's right. uh, you know, we'll have, to, we'll have to see what the audience thinks of that one. Yeah. Send, send us in messages there, audience. Uh should Daniel quit his comedy routine and just stick to movie reviewing, or what? What should we do here? I, yeah, I, I feel like I just come in and bring in the jokes. That's that's really my, my goal <laughs> here, you know. Intelligent commentary, not my bag here. I come in and I want to tell some jokes. That's it, you know. And I thought generally the, the acting was pretty good across the board. I mean, even Charles B. Pierce doing his comedy bit, I mean, he did a good job for what he was doing. And oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, if you're, if you're going to do the kind of broad comedy, sell it. And I think he does. I mean, I was, again, not to bring up another film, you know, but, you know, when you talk about a director who's, you know, in his own films doing the broad comedy, you know, you can't not, I can't not think of Kevin Smith and mm -hmm. the Silent Bob character. And essentially, you know, in, in his, you know, what he will do is leaving up a dramatic moment with, oh, and then you cut to Jan Silent Bob and they're smoking a joint or something. And, yeah. you know, like it's, it's meant as kind of visual punctuation. And, uh, you know, Charles B. Pierce does not do what, you know, is not as, not as good at that as Kevin <laughs> Smith. But, um, you know, uh, it's, it's a bit jarring, but, uh, I don't know. I, 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 it didn't really bother me as much as I think some other yeah. people. Um, did um, I, I did like the acting? I liked um, even Don Wells' uh, supporting part, where she was basically the final uh, victim who actually survived mm -hmm. the attack. Um, I thought she played it really well. Apparently, she came in for a six-day shoot and only and did all of her scenes in two days, and um, she didn't read the script. She basically was just given broad points on what she was supposed to do and she went in there and did it herself and it came off very effective I thought like very very sort of a traumatic scene I mean th that's the scene that we're leading up to it uh, the killer appears in the window and shoots right. her husband right right twice in the back of the head um, and by the way I mean if some people watching this go how in the hell did he just not blow his head off he was using like a 22 caliber pistol so the idea of getting shot multiple times in the head and even not dying is not far-fetched at all so and then it kind of makes it more brutal really um, and he shoots her two or three a times. surprising number of people who try to kill themselves with a pistol mm -hmm. actually fail at it yeah. Um, it's actually one of those things where it helps to know a little bit of neurology before you <laughs> shoot yourself in the head. Um, just a little word of advice, you know, I was listening to a podcast by a neurologist who was talking about, and then just as an aside, is like, lots of people try to kill themselves and actually don't shoot themselves in the right place. Like, people don't know where their actual brain is and don't, like, aim appropriately. So it actually is very common that people have to shoot themselves twice in the head to actually kill themselves. That's a fun fact for all the kids out there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Go, go uh, take that with you when you go to sleep tonight. You know, <laughs> that, um, I'm just saying, you know, for for all of the listeners out there, if you're going to try to shoot yourself, first of all, don't. We we don't encourage. I don't yeah. encourage suicide. Uh, anything? Anyone. Anything else you want to say on the acting or? Uh... 
Oh, yes. <laughs> Jeez. I'm such a terrible podcast co-host today. It's all right. Um, no, I actually uh, like the performances. They are uh, kind of understated in that kind of 70s way. Um, Don Wells does a great job. Um, as uh, I, I really thought that sequence was really effective, yeah. you know? Um, it's hard for me to kind of think of, you know, like a single standout performance. Uh, probably uh, the uh, the Texas Ranger would probably yeah. be the only one that really kind of stands out as, a, as an individual. Um, although uh, the uh, co-lead, and I'm sorry, I'm terrible at remembering Andrew the names. Um, yeah, the, the, the blonde-headed fellow. Uh, yeah, Deputy Norman Ramsey. <laughs> Yes. yes. Uh, sorry, it actually has been a couple of weeks since I saw the film as well, so I apologize for my uh, memory of the details. We've been trying to record this episode for about three weeks yeah. now, I think. So. <laughs> We're playing catch-up here a bit. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, uh, I, I really liked him, and then, uh, again, when I when the, uh, when the Ben Johnson shows up, I was, you know, I was kind of thinking, oh, this is not going to be, like, like this guy's going to show up, he's going to show up for a while and then leave. When he becomes the film's lead, it was actually kind of surprising yeah. to me because I was kind of involved with the, uh, with Andrew Prine. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I think he's very effective as well. Um, I don't think there's a weak link in the acting, but I don't think this is the kind of film where I approach it for the acting, maybe. Yeah, um, they're, they're, playing it very, they're playing it very natural. They're not playing really roles you're supposed to necessarily connect with and follow in a story they're more like almost set pieces in a in a docudrama so you know they're more oh this is this character this is what he did not i wonder what this character is going to do i'm going to follow along and watch him in the movie and see what he does right and no one in the film has like a you know a big you know stella moment like a big mm -hmm. you know there's no there's no like marlon brando style you know acting in this this yeah. isn't this isn't that kind of film, but I, I think that if you did have the the kind of big emotional moments, it would not be as effective as the film. I think that it works because things are, are slightly understated and underplayed um, to a large degree. Yeah. I, th I thought the killer was really effective, Bud Davis. Like, he doesn't say anything. Like, every once in a while you hear him make a little scream or something like that, like when he's pursuing his victims, like the part where he gets caught in the door of the car and it drags him around a bit, you know? Mm -hmm. um, I, th I think he played it very well, very physical, uh, but at the same time, believable, because he's not one of these unstoppable killers that we'd see in later slasher films. He's, he's very obviously a real person, you know, under that mask and that breathing. Um, interestingly enough, that... that that was basically lifted directly for Friday the 13th Part 2, which was Jason's first appearance, and he first wore, like, a burlap sack on his right. head, right? Um, and John Carpenter has said that he's taken both some elements of that character and uh, Yul Brynner's uh, gunfighter in Westworld, the robotic silent gunfighter, <laughs> and used that for Michael awesome. Myers. Yeah, so... Yeah, I mean, that, that's awesome. So when you think about it, this film really did sort of give birth to two modern slasher icons and pretty much a lot a lot to do with the genre becoming what it was for better or worse depending on what you feel about the genre as a whole but um, right. there, there really is one of the great grandfather of the whole genre really in my opinion no no definitely I mean, and you definitely get that sense because again I sat down I, I really tried you know when you recommended it I'm like well I'm not going to research this at all I'm just going to sit down and watch it and not you know um, you know not try to put it in context beforehand 
which I think it was an interesting thing because it meant that when I then went back and read it, I'm like, oh, this was one of the first. That's why it feels so uh, like it's been done over and over again since yeah. then. Um, you know, and I, I love seeing those movies, you know, um, when you, when you get a sense of what this was in its inception and it, yeah. at the beginning, you know, what this genre really became, I think is, is, uh, really, really effective. Um, again, I feel like, uh, I, I really like the film and I, 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 am not trying to make fun of it, uh, for, for, <laughs> for lack of enjoyment. It's just sort of one of those, like, uh, you know, it's, it's. Uh, maybe harder to talk about just because it's uh, it has been uh, uh, aped so many times, you know, that yeah. it's almost easier to talk about the other films that it resent that that have followed from it. Um, one thing I did want to ask you is, what do you think of the ending? Um, um, kind of uh, the the big uh, firefight, I guess, at the end involving yeah, the train. That never happened in real life, of course. They never chased the ki- the killer. Um, they from what the legend says is Andrew Prine said he, he wrote the ending because Charles B. Pierce and Ben Johnson got drunk the night before and they didn't have an ending in mind really. So, <laughs> and they put it together. That's the, that's the story anyway. I don't know if it's true, but it's, uh, it's the story I like. Um, I, I believe it. Yeah. And the funny thing is, and this is the moment. I think that, there was a lot of bourbon being drank during this I entire think so. production. I it think wouldn't so. surprise me. I mean, I, I don't think he could have paid his actors too much, so he probably got them drunk anyway. Um, how, how, how else would you drive like that? Yeah. You know, unless you're, you know slightly inebriated. <laughs> but uh, actually, that's the scene where I mentioned earlier, the, there's one little scene that sort of takes you out of the movie right together. Is, um, the, cha- the train is uh, between uh, the, the Texas Ranger and the cop and the killer. They're trying to shoot under the train to get him. And there's one moment, if you freeze the frame, actually you don't even have to freeze the frame, it's several frames, where you can clearly see the cameraman on the back of the train filming them <laughs> from the, <laughs> the train. Uh, it's, it's just, and it's, it's never been erased out of any cut of the film that I've seen. <laughs> it's awesome. And it shouldn't be erased from it. But yeah, the, no, en- the, the ending is tacked on. It's, it's an attempt to try to give some sense of closure, like they allude to Maybe the killer died in the swamp, but then afterwards they show the lineup of people going to watch the movie based on the events of the killings, and you see that killer's feet again. Like there were scenes throughout the movie where you saw the killer was actually actively spying on the police and in in people and his victims and stuff, but he only saw him from like the pant legs down right. right. So um, I, I think it it works in a way because. Um, it gives you that sort of boogeyman effect, like the legend still lives on. He's never been caught. He's still technically at large. Um, and he sort of became a boogeyman for Texarkana. Um, that's something that sort of ran deep in that community for quite a long time. I mean, they still show the movie uh, every November and October of every year, I think, for like uh, all, the, all the weeks in a row for those two months, I guess, they, they show it. Um, and that's actually sort of what the uh, sequel is based upon as well. Um, the the sequel is sort of a meta, or the uh, the remake, I guess. It's sort of a meta remake where the events happened, this movie happened, and now there's some sort of connection in, in real life in that movie where the killer shows up again, supposedly, and starts killing people. <laughs> so They should do another remake in a few years where it's, built around the fact that the second movie existed. <laughs> and there are killings based on, yeah, no. Yeah, where the second how, how movie... Deep, 
Where the second movie existed and nobody watched it, uh, from what I hear. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, I agree. I really like this film. Uh, I love it quite a bit. Um, I do have a little bit more problems with the comedy than you do, but, I mean, I overlook it because there's just so much really good effective stuff, and uh, I don't think Charles B. Pierce made a better film than this. Boggy Creek is close, but this one, I think, is just more accomplished. I mean, as for as cheap as it is, I think it looks really great and um, it's competently directed, so uh, I can't fault it at all. Yeah, so. and it's streaming on Netflix uh, streaming service now, so you can yeah. you can, you can watch, the way I did, I put it on my laptop and uh, just watch it straight through. You can also get the recent uh, DVD Blu-ray bundle release of it as well um, that also has another one of uh, Pierce's films, uh, The Evictors on it, which is also not a bad film. It's not as good as this one, but it's not a bad film. Um, and it stars, uh, what's his name? Quentin Tarantino uses him all the time um, in, in his films. Uh, the Texas Ranger. Oh, um, Bo, Bo something. Mm. Damn it, I should have wrote that down. <laughs> no, not Bo, uh, Severson or whatever, uh, the the other the other guy who plays uh, the the Texas Ranger in almost all of his films since From Dust Till Dawn. Uh, oh, yeah, this is this is not going to make it into the. Uh... <laughs> yeah, what we do is we uh, you say it and then we you just cut it. Where it's like, oh yeah, I knew that off the top of my head. Yeah. <laughs> It's not Bose Vincent, it's uh Michael Parks. Michael Parks. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um so, <laughs> so yeah. I'm gonna listen to this episode and see how much that was actually in. I'm so. gonna I'm gonna debate how much I'm gonna leave in. I, I might leave it all in just for the fuck of it. Because it's only sure. a basically a half hour episode anyway, so what the hell. Um so yeah, I guess we both like the film. We both definitely recommend it. Um it's well worth see seeking, especially if you're a fan of uh slasher movies and uh, sort of crime procedurals because this is sort of like an early form of both of those that are, you know, very prevalent now in, in film everywhere and TV. Um, so, Daniel, would you like to plug whatever you want to plug? Uh, yeah, if you like listening to me meander aimlessly, you can uh, check out my Doctor Who podcast at Oi Spaceman, that's oispaceman.libsyn.com, and I do that one with my wife, and so um, slightly less uh, sexual tension on that podcast than on yeah, this one, so yeah. just keep it, be aware of that, you know. She keeps um, you restrained much better. Yes, yes. Um, but yeah, no, check me out there. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Daniel Lee Harper, um, and I'm kind of on that here and there, so if you do want to... Follow me and see what else I'm up to in my life. Uh, you can do it that way. All right. Uh, and you can find me, Lee Russell. Uh, uh, if you want to email uh, questions, comments, um, hate mail, whatever, hoaglyreviews at gmail.com. You can look for me at hoaglyreviews on Twitter. You're probably watching this on YouTube right now because I still haven't set up the podcast hosting service. So uh, just click my name and you go right to my channel and see all my beer and booze reviews that will also probably irritate you or bore you or whatever. Um, but until then, we're going to go out with uh, our usual thing uh, where we pick a piece of music from either 
a related movie or the movie soundtrack itself, and the only thing I could really think of, uh, I didn't get very creative, I just picked the ending credit song to The Town That Dreaded Sundown. So we're going to leave with that. Uh, thank you, Daniel, and we'll see you guys later. Thanks for having me. Cheers.